0: Here we are, November the 20th, 2016. Lecture discussion number 262 on the book of Romans. Uh, To recap just a bit, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11 are about Israel's, the text, the context of those are Israel's rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. That occurred in your Bible at Matthew 12. Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11 are dealing with that event. Now, you would expect that. Paul was a Pharisee. The rejection of the Messiahship of Christ would be the biggest thing to happen in his life. It's astonishing that it happened to him. And Israel the nation that was given the beloved city Jerusalem given the Shekinah glory physically they could see the Shekinah glory in their midst in their temple and in their tents or in the tent of Moses they had the covenants the law the temple the promises of salvation they rejected the very person the one God himself in the place who gave them all of that to begin with that is Romans chapter 9 and that causes Paul to have tremendous sorrow. Romans chapter 10, Romans 10.1, 10, in fact, is Paul's prayer to God for Israel to be saved. He is praying Holy Spirit through Paul. Paul's, he's agonizing over the fact that Israel is in a position of doom. And please save them, God. Please forgive them. For what they have done. And Romans 11 is Paul's declaration, again, the Holy Spirit using Paul, that that prayer would be answered. That Israel's rejection of Christ is not final, it is not total, and God intends to redeem the nation of Israel, his chosen people. That is Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. And God will redeem uh, the nation of Israel. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Romans 11.25. That is an idiom that is talking about the age of the Gentiles, and, and specifically the end of it, when all the Gentiles have been gathered. So, Revelation 17, Revelation 13, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 10, Matthew 24, where there's three questions on this subject. The Apostles asked Jesus three questions. When is this Gentile trampling of the the beloved city going to end, uh, all of those, that is Romans 9, 10, and 11. And that's where we have mostly been the past few Sundays, fundamentally, if not exclusively. We're concerned with the beginnings and the endings, the ending which is the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, of the time of the Gentiles, of the age of the Gentiles. When did it begin? When will it end? When will the fullness be there? Because when we see the fullness, that is, uh, that is the time of Jacob's trouble, and that's where uh, these passages located in Daniel two seven, Revelation thirteen seventeen, and all that. That's the clock. That's why we're here. We're looking at the timepiece. We're giving the timeline, if you will of when the age of the Gentiles began and when it will end in those particular chapters. And the answer, of course, to to how long the nation of Israel must wait to be restored as God's nation of of priests, and why exactly or specifically Israel does wait, and why God waits. That's the uh, context of where we have been the last few Sundays. And those chapters uh, in Daniel and Revelation, they also uh, fully address the restoration process, for lack of a better phrase. To uh, put it in another term, it's always best to say something and then say it a little differently so more than me gets it. In other words, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's tribulation, the 2520 days of the scarlet beast are the antichrist or the man of sin or the son of perdition the 2520 days of the scarlet beast is what we are studying because of how it relates to Romans 9:10 and 11 so today I'm going to add a couple of additional things to, to keep in the forefront to remember when we're doing this. There's a war breaks out in heaven. Let me emphasize that. A war breaks out in heaven. What are the obvious questions? Revelation 12, 7 through 9 is what that is. I'll read it a little bit here. Let's do that really fast. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. The dragon and his angels did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. What's the obvious question there? So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old. It's called the serpent. That takes you to Genesis 3, doesn't it? The seed of the serpent is the scarlet beast. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Obviously, there are many questions that just blow up out of Revelation 12, 7 through 9. So let's just consider some. War in heaven. Start imagining a war in heaven. Do you have uh, soldiers? Do you have uniforms? Do you have command structure? Weapon systems. It broke out. Why? Something caused it. Where's the match? What lit it? Is is this, what causes the fire? It's not a skirmish. It is all out total war. Revelation 12. Not a clash. Not an encounter. Not a reconnaissance platoon. Shoot somebody. This is armies mobilizing. What caused it? Total, full-scale war. Try to imagine it. How many troops? Who's commanding them? How do angelic beings fight? What weapons do they have? Where in the Bible do I see weapons in the hands of angelic beings? What do they use? I have Elisha showing Kahazi, the angelic host surrounding him. And I get an example of what they look like and what they have. Notice that the army of Satan are cast out. They are thrown to the earth. His angels cast out with him, to repeat Revelation twelve through nine, 12 through 9 Which means that the army of the dragon was where? So let's let's go ahead and put heaven. Right here. Who's in heaven? The army of Satan is in heaven, and the army of Michael is in heaven. I'm going to give Satan this much territory, so Michael has the rest. How long has Satan had that territory? How long has he been in heaven? He's in heaven no longer, so he clearly was in heaven for some period of time prior. How long? To repeat, is this an invasionary scenario? Has Satan invaded heaven? Or has the army of Satan, the army of the serpent, always been in heaven? If so, how much territory did he control? And why would God allow him to control it? Why does God finally put an end to this angelic status quo? He has, he does. This is now the time that it happens. When does it happen? We'll have to have a timeline. I'll just give you the seven years of the tribulation for now. If you put it where you think it happened. The war breaks out in heaven. When did it happen? Why does it happen when it does? What is it related to? God puts an end to this angelic status quo, as I call it, where I have these two forces that clearly intend to, to attack each other. How long has this condition been the condition, and what caused the condition in the first place? How long has Michael and his army, Satan and his army, been in readiness, waiting for this war? What lit it off? How many casualties? Can an angel kill another angel? how's how does he do it? Define killing as it may apply to an angel. If you were watching this war, would you see casualties? Would you know they were casualties? Is it similar, what's going on, to our physical realm? When we die, we're split, right? The body is separated from the spiritual soul-mind. All the same thing. The material, the body, is separated from the immaterial. The non-physical from the physical. Two distinct separate substances. One is a spiritual substance. The other is a physical or a particle or a material-based substance. So, is uh, is the angels the same way? We're separated for a time when we die from our bodies. And we are we are in an intermediate state. If you wish to think of it as a disembodied state, you'd be accurate. We are never described as... We are a soul. We are not a body. The body is a machine that the soul controls. So our machine and ourselves, our person, our capacities, our mental uh, components, memories, personality... Are separated, And we wait in that intermediate state when we die for resurrection, or reestablishment. Does the angelic spiritual realm have a similar intermediate state is ultimately my question. That's where I was headed, in case you thought I was just wandering around. And why wouldn't you think that, that I was wandering around? Is there something similar, if I kill an angel, if you conceive the hypothesis... That I could kill an angel. What is his state, status? He is immortal, just like you are immortal. You can never cease to exist. It is impossible. See me later. If you don't understand why not. It's, It's not very complex logic. Is there a similar intermediate state for an angelic being that has been killed in a fight? A war, a battle. Again, if you could ascribe to this total war a cause, what caused it? So think about the book of Revelation. Think about what might have, what incident in Revelation that we might have discussed causes this war. Do you think it just finally boiled over on its own? No. Something that happened caused this to start. In other words, what moves Satan to attack if you have the Satan attack position? How many of you never raise your hand here? But how many of you, if you did raise your hand, never? How many of you think Satan is the initiator of the attack? How many of you think that, no, Michael attacked? Somebody said, no, Michael would never do that. Michael's nice. The attacker's always bad. How long has Michael been putting up with this? Do you read Revelation 12? Do you see how joyful they are that they have finally knocked Satan and his army out of heaven? They are thrilled. They are very happy for themselves, but what else are they? If you've read ahead, how could you read ahead? You don't have any idea where I'm going. They're very happy, but they know, uh-oh, we drove him down to where he is now. That's not good news for those who were down there, right? So, did Michael attack? If he did, why did he do it at this particular time? Something started it. What was it? Notice I keep repeating that question. What uh, Will the occupants of the earth who are, are alive at this time, will they see and feel and know that this total war is happening in the heavenly realm? Will there be some kind of evidence that spills over into the physical realm? Sound? What will the occupants of the earth feel or see? Why does God, who could remove Satan with the word, he does it in Matthew 4, it's one of the great proofs that Christ is God himself. He says, Away. And Satan is away. I always ask, How far did he go? And he knew, Satan knew at that exact moment that Jesus Christ had the power to send him away at will. And nothing Satan could do. The most powerful created being of his experience is thrown aside like a stick. And he knows he's got somebody quite formidable. That may have been the time where he realized that this is God himself. Maybe not. He knew Christ was extraordinarily powerful. And God, Christ, could have removed Satan with a word, but he doesn't. He, he permits, he, instead he permits, us, um, uh, he accepts, if you will, an angelic war. Why does he do that? How long does this war take? What is proved by the war? That becomes what you ask, isn't it? If God permits it, allows it, doesn't intervene, then he must have a reason. What is the reason that God doesn't intervene? Where am I going with this line of questioning at some point? I'm going to transfer it to the physical war that happens in the tribulation. By asking the same questions of the spiritual war, I'll see if we can... Uh, derive the reasons for the physical wars once you have figured out or you have decided why God permits it how many of you have never raised your hand how many of you have done that wonderful no one that's really cool because someone really could have done it but you can't raise your hand so then I get to decide who doesn't know anything which is fantastic power. (laughs) I got a wonderful letter. I think I read it last week. I thought that was particularly funny. It was really funny when I first did it teaching 8th graders. might not be as funny anymore. All the 8th graders are 45 years old now, or 50. Sob. What tactical methodology is employed? Once you have why God permits it, what is the tactical methodology? How do they organize? How do they attack each other? Is it typical of our... uh, uh, Do they have a West Point for angels to study how to attack other angels? So once you've solved all of that, now you must solve how do pseudo-physical spiritual beings engage in war. Notice how I described them. Pseudo physical. They have physical characteristics. Clearly, they do. At, at Sodom. They came with Christ. They were. Do they fight these beings hand to hand? Have you decided uh, how many Satan has? You should. That should be relatively easy. He has a third. So let's give him a third. He's got a third. Michael's got two things. How's Michael doing so far? Doing good. we call him Mikey. Mickey. That won't work. It's not Michelangelo. <laughs> no. Just checking. Michael has two-thirds. Who do you suppose has the most powerful angels? Because there is a hierarchy in the angels, right? Who has the most powerful? Who is convinced that they're going to win? Does Satan and his one-third, are they confident that they can slaughter Michael and his two-thirds? Did Satan's forces believe that they're going to succeed? Once again, are they defensive or offensive? Did Michael say, okay, now is the time we hit him. You've got to get him out of here now. Or did Satan go, now is the time we take Michael out. Because what might have happened, or what did happen, somewhere else. Something in the physical realm causes this war. What is it? Notice I keep repeating it. I'm going to do it again. Why did God not intervene here, interfere here? He doesn't. That's the key question. And so now you go around and you find where else God does not interfere. And that's what we'll do today. Why does he allow a war that he could easily stop? What's the point? Is the purpose the same? Does it have this? I used to be able to do this quietly and the people on the internet wouldn't know. Now they know. Days fall. Is this issue being brought before us again? And if so, what is being decided here? Okay, once you've decided on the solutions to those cursory questions, uh, Revelation 12, 7 through 9 questions, begin applying your conclusions to the tribulations. To the tribulation. Because I have war in heaven, this Well, another racing as well. Too much moving involved. I have war in heaven, and I have war on earth. That is not a surprise. I would expect it. What was the target in heaven? We had a war in heaven. What was the objective? Then extrapolate, extend that to the war on earth. What is the point? What is Satan trying to accomplish in heaven? What is he trying to accomplish on earth? Do you suspect that they have a similar uh, characteristic? I would say that you should suspect that. This one, the earth ambition, the war on earth, the prize of earth, the desire of the serpent is what? It is the beloved city of Jerusalem. It is the beloved city of God and the Jewish people. That's who he is after. He also goes after Christians. But primarily he is focused on the city of Jerusalem and the Jews. What was he focused on in heaven? What was he trying to do? What was his capture of the flag? Where was the flag? On earth we can say it captured the flag. Uh, It's in Jerusalem. Where is it in heaven? Is there a relationship between the temple in heaven and the temple on earth? Hebrews. That's a clue. The earth ambition, the price, the prize of the earth, the desire of the serpent, is the Jewish people and the beloved city of God. What would be the counterpart in heaven? Now, never if Mikey was here... Never allow yourself to disregard this angelic realm whenever you study. And you certainly not revelation. My goodness, the whole book of Revelation is filled with the angelic realm. They're constantly referred to. They're omnipresent in the book of Revelation. So and they came first. They came before us in the timeline of, of where was the angels created? Let's go ahead and put angels created here. Where was the earth? Where was Adam? Was he before the angels or after the angels? Clearly he is after the angels. How much time was he after the angels? Do you know what the primary position is in the commentaries? Of, uh, the, and of course they're all traditional and who knows if they're right. But it's in the hundreds of years. They came first. That's without dispute. How long? We have to decide. And we will soon, which is a relative term. I have to retire. You can't just give it all away, and then what? Where am I now? Back in the workforce? Oh, that has not gone well. The angels came first. Okay? Uh, try to attempt to envision their perspective when you read the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, Romans 9, 10, 11. Um, Try to envision what they're thinking. They're all over the book of Daniel. They're identified in the book of Daniel. Similar things happen that are going to happen in the tribulation. But I want you to envision, again, their perspectives on us in the physical dimension. What are they thinking? See, this is the Genesis 1 question. They're watching Genesis 1 happen. They're seeing the earth being transformed, depending on which view you have. They're seeing darkness and an earth completely covered in darkness and in water. Uh, They see light come. Did they notice? Here's the fun question. Did God give them any advance warning? Did he call them all together and say, hey, I'm going to take this dark earth and I'm gonna hit it with myself. I am the light of life, and I'm gonna hit it. And life, physical life, they had no concept of physical life. Did he hand them out a little outline? Everybody, get here's, here's the video on what I'm gonna do, you're all ready? Or did he just do it? Which one do you think? Did God give them advance warning? Or was he silent? And all of a sudden, boom, all this stuff is happening. What would they think? Let's, let's go here, let's go ahead and put Adam here, just for fun. I've done this many, many times, but it's still fun. Where's Satan's fall? Would you say it was before Adam or after Adam? Anyone who thinks that it was, uh, Satan's fall is after the creation of Adam, please get up and move over to the left side of the (laughs) (laughs) room. Those of you, don't do it, but that was the greatest thing that I ever did, because I had, I think I was doing salvation by grace or salvation by uh, grace plus works, and I had a pastor, a renowned uh, doctoral uh, scholar, and his wife sitting in the middle, and I said, if you believe that, and I put both arguments up, and knowing, of course, that uh, salvation by law plus uh, grace was in error, or, or, I'm sorry, it's... uh, it can't be defended. But I asked people to go to separate sites. And she went to the Law Plus Grace side. He blew up. It was fantastic. The greatest display of comedy I've ever had in the church. I would do it again, but it was actually not as funny as I remember. Certainly not for them. But she went over there and he screamed at her. Woman, he said, you are in error. No, it was great. They never came back. I, I wonder whatever happened to them. Oh, that was that was. Fun. I was a lot more irreverent then than I am now. How is that possible? Anyway, if you have Adam here, where do you have the fall of Satan? Well, all of you have the fall of Satan right here, don't you? So, now the question is, how long is this? How long is that? Angels are created. How long did they go before Satan's fall? After his fall, uh, how long before Adam? Did they have any advance warning that God was going to do this? I will say to you, I don't believe so. I think he acted in absolute shock to them. He was silent. The heavens are in disarray. I have the fall of Satan. I have one-third, two-thirds. Now, boom, here comes this incredible display of creative Capabilities. And they watched it. When they saw it, what did they think the purpose of it was? Just thought, God's messing around. He must be bored. Or did they think they were being replaced? Or did they think, hey, he's going to solve the mess that we're in? Who thought what? But always think about, contemplate uh, what the angels are doing and thinking when they're seeing things. Don't divorce them out or isolate them out. Don't self-focus on humanity. They're not doing that. They're looking at us going, how is this affecting our condition? How are we involved in them? We have a tendency to forget they exist, which is very disrespectful. Okay. So... Let's go ahead and deal with this. Diagrams are because I'm such so good at diagrams, <laughs> the demand for me to do more of them. Here's my seven years of tribulation. So there's our tribulational period, and I have an aftermath. I made that too big, so let me make some perspective here. You can see there's a period at the end of the tribulation. We'll get to that in a second. But in the total war in heaven occurs in the middle of the tribulational period. The tribulational period has a middle. What's the obvious question? How long is the middle, and what happens in the middle? One of the things that happens in the middle is the total war in heaven. So, we've had 1260 days, we have 1260 days, we have another 75 at the end. This is the a day. Israel operates on 360 day years, so this is three and a half years. Feel free to do the math yourself on the bulletin. This is three and a half years again. I have a middle, and the war in heaven occurs in the middle. Lots of things happen in the middle. How long is the middle? The total war of the earth is at the end. It's back here. It's the climactic. There are other wars. We'll get into that, too. There's a war that happens in the middle. What do you think happens in the war in the middle? Something happens in the middle to caused the war in heaven, so all we have to do is go around and find all the things that happen in the middle and figure out which one of those caused this war. We have this, this total war, the climatic war, at the end. Then we have a thousand years, not drawn in scale. Then I have another huge war. May God God Then the restoration of all things. There's another aftermath, period of aftermath, and then the restoration of all things, or the eternal order. the same questions are going to apply what causes this war at the end of the millennial rule what causes this war in heaven what causes this climatic total war at the end what's going on something happens everything has a cause and effect right so what is the cause and effect what are the and the war in heaven and the war on earth are intrinsically closely connected and linked, you're not going to be able to separate them the scarlet beast he initiates the Armageddon process So that's what we would call this it's actually hard. Yeah, I'll go ahead and add more to it. Get to that in a minute. But he initiates the Armageddon process, if you will. He gathers his armies. That's what he does. Now apply this to what's going on in heaven. Does Satan gather his forces? Does Michael gather his forces? Do they know they're going to fight ahead of time? How much time did they have? When did they know? What made them go? Okay, the war is coming here in heaven. The scarlet beast does a similar thing on earth. He gathers his armies. Satan and the Antichrist will invade the beloved city of God. Here we go over here. So we're going to we're going to have uh, here's Dead Sea, right? Uh, Here's Jerusalem. Put it there, Uh, and they are going to gather in this valley. There's a lot of confusion here. We'll get to that in a minute. But he gathers his armies and Satan and the Antichrist are intending to evade the city of God. They come for Jerusalem. They've always come for Jerusalem. It's rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. They've done it all over the centuries. They're going to do it again. He also came for something in the heavenly realm. Ask yourself again always, why is he doing this? Why this focus? Importantly, as the Antichrist vacates his operational center, so let me draw that for put it on the fence all of that it. over here is Babylon the Antichrist vacates Babylon and goes this direction as soon as he does he gets hit they come down and hit Babylon it's destroyed as soon as he vacates Babylon is destroyed by the consecrated ones, the Bible says, the Gentiles, the exalted ones. God calls them his exalting ones. He's very pleased with them. They sweep down from the mountains and Babylon is burned to the ground. Isaiah thirteen, nineteen through twenty two um, uh, equates this to Sodom. That what they do to Babylon is equivalent to what God did to Sodom, and He's very pleased with them. Yes, go. Are they the descendants of the Gideonites? Are they the descendants of the Gideonites? No, I don't think they are. I do not think they're the descendants of the Gideonites. I think that they are the Assyrians. Okay. Because I have this, I have the Assyria, I have this highway that goes through Jerusalem and Egypt from Nineveh. So Nineveh, uh, uh, Egypt, and Jerusalem have this holy highway that God loves, Isaiah 19. Anyway, he calls them the his he his consecrated, his dedicated Gentiles. But he also equates it to Sodom, and I need to make this point perhaps as emphatically as I can. Sodom, Sodom, Sodom is always mentioned in the Bible. Always there. It was a very unusual place. The wickedness is unparalleled post-flood. Whatever happened in Sodom is not happening in San Francisco or Muldoon or pick your spot. What's happening in Sodom was at a level we have no comprehension of unusual wickedness, unparalleled post-flood wickedness. Noah and Lot are always brought forth as warnings, as it was with Noah and Lot, so shall it be at the end of the age of the Gentiles. When the fullness of the Gentiles is starting to come in, we will have Sodom and Lot and Genesis 6 and Noah. That's what's going to happen, a repeating of these two Events. And God Himself is going to come because the outcry is beyond imagination. The level of evil rises, evil continually, the level of evil that was re- reported in Genesis 6 and Genesis 19, and God does intervene. He didn't intervene on the war in heaven, but He's gonna intervene. What's the difference? Where is the threshold, the horizon? God intervenes, God doesn't. So all of that to say, pay attention to any and all Sodom referrals. What happened there was ended by who? Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, Jesus God. He waited and he waited and he waited. He's long-suffering, he's patient, and he finally says that's enough, and he destroys Sodom. They were incredibly evil. And God in the flesh, Christ, the Ancient of Days, the I Am, Melchizedek, he came and he, he extinguished. There's a mass extinction of the people of Sodom. That was end. What moves him to do this? So same question. Why doesn't the God in the Antichrist just come down and, boom, take him out? He doesn't. Away. That would seem convenient. The Antichrist has gathered all his armies right here. Here he is. He's He's right right there. there. Just take them out. What are they going to do? They're going to go south and attack Jerusalem. And God doesn't stop them. He watches. Just like the war in heaven. He doesn't do what he did in Sodom, and he doesn't do what he did in Genesis six. He doesn't do what he did in with uh, Nimrod. He waits, and they attack Jerusalem, and they come. They're in Megiddo. Let me let me kind of clean that up a little bit. That you want too many movies, pretty high. Let's just go it all of that. I'm sure I get the spelling right because you have these places Megiddo. Armageddon. You would rec- that recognize Armageddon as Armageddon. Um, that's where he gathers the Antichrist. Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo or the mountain of Megiddo. So it's considered, uh, it's not to be confused with the valley of Jericho. Oops. is real ah did I spell that right now I forgot the R that's commonly confused the mountain is the guardian of the valley this is the valley that's a mountain so recognize that he is when he gathers his army he comes from Babylon and here he is here is Jerusalem he is in the valley of Zezreel. And oh, the mountain overlooks the valley. So that's where he is. There is no Armageddon Valley, if you will, though it's commonly uh, confused. But never mind. The army of the kings of Revelation 17. Remember those guys? they got ten kings of Revelation 17. And they come when the Scarlet Beast uh, tells them to come. However, there's not ten of them anymore. But he calls those ten kings, except there's not ten. So ten don't come because there's not ten. How many are there, you ask? You should know we will talk about it in a minute but the purpose is as he the little horn the scarlet beast is called the little horn he sends out this order and the armies of the kings of revelation 17 they bring uh, the, uh, everything they've got and the purpose is unmistakable they all gather here in the valley of Jezreel and they're getting ready to attack this city of Jerusalem the blood the beloved city and and uh, They're going to go down and pour down upon Jerusalem and there's millions and millions and millions and millions of them and God doesn't wipe them out. He lets them attack. That's why. What is God thinking? This war is going to happen. Fighting and war. The battle for God's beloved city befalls. I submit That Satan and the Antichrist, the false prophet, all know for sure that they get to attack Jerusalem. They all know that they can gather up here and God is not going to destroy them. No Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen. No no noetic flood. They get to get every millions and millions and millions. And they know he's not going to hit them. Just as when the fight broke out in heaven, they knew that he wasn't going to hit them there too. The question becomes, why does he do it this way? Does God have a reason? Yes, he does. Think like him. What is God's thinking? I, I think, Um, I think it's obvious that Satan and the Antichrist are certain that God will not show himself at the battle for Jerusalem. They know they get to attack Jerusalem, and they know why they get to attack Jerusalem. They're much better scholars than we think. They've read the book. The war will be allowed, using a humanistic perspective. What then is proved by this war? What was proved by the war in heaven? Is the same thing proven? I think yes. Okay, back to our story. The extraordinary, massive flood of humanity—that is the forces of the Antichrist—that it comes for Jerusalem, comes down through the valley, and all of these men have what on them? What do they all have and carry? And can, they're all consistently uh, marked the same way, aren't they? They all have the mark of their beast. Now ask, how formidable are these men? What does that, that mark do to them? Do you think it just lets them buy big gulps? How smart is the Antichrist and Satan? Is this just, oh, I, get, I, get, I can go on the home shopping network with my mark? No, it, is a, it has a worshipful aspect to it, but it also uh, adds value to them. The, how formidable, how much enhancement has been done to these individuals who have the mark of the beast? Are, are they afraid of, what are they afraid of? They worship the beast. Why did they worship the beast? You know why. We read it over and over and over again in 17.9 of Revelation why did they worship the beast? He did something where they went, okay, we're in. Give me the mark. What did he do? How much enhancement, how formidable, how mighty are these who seek to kill the Jews and the king of the Jews? And, and do they think their success is assured? Back to the war in heaven. Did his, did his forces in heaven think they were going to win? Did Satan think he was going to win? Again, Satan is described as a, well, as a glass, but it's really a cup. He's so filled with wisdom, it overfills. He is full with wisdom all the way up. It's overfilling the cup. It's sitting on the cup. The tensile strength of the liquid is, is not going down, the, allowing the liquid to go down the sides, but it has that overflowing That's how much wisdom he has. Does he think he's going to win the battle in heaven? Yes or no? Do you think he fools himself? That's the ultimate question, isn't it? Now, does the Antichrist think he's going... He knows he's not going to be attacked by God. How does he know that? How come you don't know it? Does the Antichrist think he's going to take Jerusalem? Do his forces think they're going to take Jerusalem, right? Do they? Do his forces? Uh, do they think they're going to be successful? Uh, do they think they're going to take any casualties? Uh, I say they do think they're going to win because they are useful Egypts. All of them. They're blind. They're stupid. They're hatefully blind and stupid, which is the highest level of blind stupid you can get. But Satan is neither of those, nor is the Antichrist. Satan and Antichrist have conspired to murder all of their followers. So what they do, and they're going to murder them not just to the intermediate state; they're going to enter the, in, they're going to murder them for the eternal order. And they're doing it because that is how they believe they will achieve victory. But more on that some later on. Satan is not a fool, not a fool. He has a plan, and it is extraordinarily cunning. If you do not have the plan of Satan being extraordinarily cunning, then you should read Michael's response to him in Jude. Michael does not underestimate Satan. That's the archangel, right? Likewise, Jesus Christ, Jesus God, has his plan. One is omniscient, which means the one who is omniscient knows the plans of the one who is not. That's a pretty big advantage. So this is not going to be a fair fight. But you have to answer, why does he allow this? The ones who are not omniscient... uh, they know that they are not omniscient. See definition of omniscient. And they know that the one who is omniscient is omniscient. So they have a plan that takes that into consideration. So if your plan, if you ascribe a plan to Satan and you don't take omniscience and knowing of omniscience into your plan, then again, that's a flaw. They know that they're going up against an omniscient creator God. So, with that as your foundational fact, what is his plan? What plan does Satan slash Antichrist have to combine now? That takes that foundational fact into account. Why does God wait as the attack of Jerusalem proceeds? He does it because that's part of his plan. And Satan knows that he knows that Satan knows why. Zechariah 12, 1 through 9. How am I doing? Let's let's read this. You wonder why things fall out. It's because I can't find little pieces of paper. So I put thick, heavy things in there in order for me to find them. That's why. And I have a whole bunch of Uh, these highlighters at home in my office and they're convenient. There. You don't need to write me anymore and say, why do you put highlighters in your Bible? 12, 1 through 9. It's a lot, I know. Zechariah 12. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. This is God who makes a spirit. He made your soul and he put it inside of you. That's who this is. He also is stretching out the universe in his spare time and he set everything in perfect positioning. Behold, he says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of, a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. I'm about that? And it shall happen in that, that, in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples who would heave it away. And all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In other words, God said, okay, come on. But there's going to be a heavy, heavy lifting here. He's not going to annihilate it. He's going to make them drunk with blind, stupid hate. And he's going to, they're going to be enthralled. They can't, they're frothing to get to Jerusalem and to kill the Jews. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the, and the govern, governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the, in the Lord of hosts, the, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fire... Fiery torches in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. God loves his place. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In that day... Uh, the feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. The angel of the Lord is the name, is nomenclature, the appellation of Christ himself. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So he is going to seek to destroy them. Notice that very perfect language. He's going to make Jerusalem very tough. First, it's a cup of drunkenness. The Lord who is accelerating the expansion of the universe, who set the foundation of the earth, who puts your spirit inside you, the one who makes souls, the eternal soul maker. What's a soul made out of? Is it particle? No. Where does he get the soul material? He's the soul maker. Has he got a machine? That would be Particle. How does a particle-based system produce a non-particle-based characteristic? That is why evolution cannot be accepted. Evolution is a particle-based, physical-based system. Your soul is not particle-based, it's not physical-based. How can a physical-based, particle-based system account for a non-physical entity? He says so. I'm the one that makes your soul. How does he do it? Out of what material? Ha! Trick question. Who is, he's moving the entire universe, two trillion galaxies at least, and he's moving them. That's a lot of stuff. He presents Jerusalem to the armies of the Antichrist, and they are drunk with hate, and they are blind. But he says, Jerusalem will not go easily. It will not go quietly. The feeble in Jerusalem, me, will fight like David. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, who is a brilliant scholar of Israelology, always used to say, I wish I could go there and fight like David. He hopes that he could, as a Jew, a Messianic Jew, a Christian Jew, he could go and fight like David. That's what he wants to do. And those who are of David's house, they fight like Christ. Now, what does that mean? They fight like God. They fight the way God would fight. They think like God. That's pretty cool. They don't fight like a man would fight. They think like God would fight. They fight like God would fight. You might think that's power. I'm going to tell you it's far more complex than just physical capability. It's mental understanding. They fight with the understanding of God. That makes them ridiculous to deal with. But the feeble fight like David. So what kind of war is this? Old people fighting like David. Obviously, the Antichrist armies, that tells you in Zechariah, sustain heavy losses. Does the Antichrist know he's going to sustain heavy losses? Has he read Zechariah 12? Back to the glass, right? I've long wondered about this battle as the Antichrist is being it's just, he says, it's a, a fire touching uh, tinder, just boom. And he's just getting massacred out there. Now he has millions and millions and millions and millions and millions. Who knows? Hundreds of millions, maybe. All the kings send. Down he comes. How many are in Jerusalem at the time? And they are fighting. And they're butchering these guys. I worked with two guys that uh, fought in the same battle, Ollie and Lyle. They fought in the same tank battle in Korea. And they would talk about it in the lunchroom of the Alaska Railroad, about the Chinese, what it was like to fight the Chinese. And if you haven't had any understanding of history, uh, what the Chinese did with their soldiers, a lot of them didn't even have weapons. They just ran towards the... The positions of the United States military. It was incredible. Massive humanity. Well, that is what's happening here. Millions and millions, hundreds of millions are coming for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has tremendous capability. And I always ask, does anybody experiencing this battle stop? They see these old guys out there just fighting like David. Does anybody go, what's happening here? Does doubt ever creep in? No, it doesn't. Micah 4.11 tells us that they seek to defile the city of God. That's their plan, to defile Jerusalem. So what was the plan of Satan over here? It was to defile what? Satan was intending to defile something in heaven. Defile, defile. We have two defiles. What, what, why is that? Why are they seeking to defile the city of God? What does defiling Jerusalem accomplish? Never do they consider that God has lured them, that the battle for Jerusalem is just merely a step. Uh, when I say they don't, I mean the, uh, the, the non-Antichrist, non-Satan aspect of this. The kings. This is merely a step. God hooks says it all the time. A strategic positioning is what this is. This isn't the end of the battle. The battle doesn't end here. The battle was never going to end in Jerusalem. What's important is not this battle. What's important is the counterattack. So what then is the reasoning of this battle of Jerusalem? A great slaughter takes place. The forces of the Antichrist are cut to pieces. But because of their sheer volume... Jerusalem falls.
1: The Antichrist
0: takes Jerusalem. It collapses. The beloved city is overrun. The leaders of Jerusalem are executed. Horrific executions ensue. ensue Sorry, destruction. They destroy. Acts of great evil happens. Jerusalem is. Massacred after they get inside, but they took tremendous. Ma- How happy is the Antichrist? Very happy. His plan's going perfectly. Hundreds and millions and millions dead, Jews and his followers. Great day to be Antichrist. But uh, that the, the fight will continue. The Antichrist now marches towards Basra. You would probably um, say Petra, but that would be Greek. He's marching towards Basra, because that's where the remnant of Israel is entrenched. Okay, There are two groups of Jews in distinct locations during this invasion, uh, Jerusalem and Basra. So what's the obvious question now? Why are they split? Why didn't everybody stay in Jerusalem? They didn't. So what's the difference between the people in Basra and the people in Jerusalem? Obviously, the people in Jerusalem are different than the people in Basra. I know that. Why? Because of the counterattack. God did not stop this. He he, he gave them, they had tremendous capabilities. And they fought incredibly. But they lost. This is different. What's the difference? Take that to heaven. What's the difference? By now, the Jewish forces in Basra, they know that Jerusalem fell. They know the Antichrist is moving towards them. They know that he's leaving Jerusalem behind because he's going to kill as many what? Jews and what? His own followers as he possibly can. He has to assume that the people in Basra are just like the people in Jerusalem. They have the same biological capabilities. How advanced is Israel going to get in our lifetime? And What are the leaders of Basra thinking? Are they going to surrender? No, they're not going to surrender. That's Santa Ana again, right? They're not going to surrender. Death is inevitable. If you, sur- if you fight or if you surrender, the result is the thing. It should now be clear that Jerusalem's defeat was probably a shock. They looked at Jerusalem falling in Basra and went, Wow. We well, didn't think they would go down unless they read the Bible, in which case they would know. Where am I going if things get really uninhabitable here in Alaska? When you say uninhabitable in Alaska, that's kind of a, a redundancy. Huh? For those of you on the Internet, it gets dark by noon here now. I saw where, <laughs> that's a joke, I saw where in Barrow where the sun went down now it's going to be gone for three months no sunlight for three months. Those are tough people. We are, we are whiny little weenies compared to them. It's you folks in Arizona. <laughs> okay. That's trolling for letters, is what that's called. As a professional. I think Basra saw Jerusalem fall and they were stunned. But by that I mean, Jerusalem had to fall, though, because Basra needed to witness the destruction of Jerusalem. And consider the events, the signs in the heavens that's been going on, the totality of the tribulation, the two witnesses, the 144,000. These people have seen Ezekiel 38. They saw the seven seals. They saw the trumpets. They saw the bowls. They see all of this. And yet something's wrong with them. Something's wrong and something... Something bad, not bad, missing. Okay, give it away. Stop the lecture. Jerusalem, with all its capabilities, they saw all these unimaginable signs and wonders, the revealing of the supernatural reality, and yet Jerusalem, with all of that, is still, is still gone. And only Basra remains. The Jews in Basra, are the remnant, and it's under siege. And the question they had to ask is, why did Jerusalem lose? What was missing? Intentionally defective question. What was missing? I said, I intentionally defected that question. As unbelievable as the defense of Jerusalem was, was something was missing. Again, that's another intentionally defective, misleading statement. The Jews had to be asking themselves, how could Jerusalem be defeated? Why didn't God answer their prayers? You know they prayed to God, but He didn't answer them. They were destroyed. Why didn't God come and save His own city of Jerusalem? You know they prayed to Him to come and save Jerusalem. He didn't come. Basra, as you know, the leaders of Basra are gonna, they have to answer those questions, and they did. That's the difference. They knew why God didn't come. They knew why the prayers weren't answered. I'm out of time. They figure out what was missing in Basra. That's one more intentionally obfuscated sentence. That's three, for those of you who keep score. It's not what was missing. It's who. Jerusalem had a Christ-less defense, and they sent up Christ-less. Those were my slurry. Too many S's. I have to write it. They had a Christless defense and a Christless prayer. as powerful as their defense was. it was Christ less, which means that it is ultimately futile, It's worthless and it's useless. and the Antichrist knew it. He knew the prayers would not have Christ in them. That's why he knew. That he could attack. Judas, I'm sorry, Jerusalem, I said something there, save for next week. Jerusalem versus the Antichrist slash Satan was basically a battle fought between two powerless entities. Neither side had omnipotence. See, God looks at them fighting and goes, There's no omnipotence here. This isn't a fight. This is powerlessness. There's no real power. Basra finally, finally understands that and they put all the pieces together. The purpose of the tribulation was for the Jews to call on the name of Jesus Christ to become Christ-full. And that is what God waits for. That is why He does not intervene or interfere. It boils down to Christ-full or Christ-less. Think about your own life in case you think. I never do an applicational sermon. Why doesn't God answer me? Because it is a Christless request. Please give me a Mercedes-Benz. I should write a song. Christless. Okay, let's shut this down today. Yay, you always say yay. Uh, with a quick review of a few orders of things. Phosphorus does not fall. Christ comes because they send up the right request. He answers. He comes when everything is in order and proper. So, next? three and a half years. We have a middle. Three and a half years. We have an end. We talked about what happened. We know the war in heaven. Okay? And once again, total of this is 225, 120 days. 1260, and 1260. 360 day year. War in heaven happens. And I asked, how long is the middle? During the middle. The Antichrist is killed in the middle. Did that cause the war in heaven? It's just thought. It's pretty there's an earthly war. And he's killed in the earthly war. Antichrist is resurrected. that cause the war in heaven? The whole world worships Satan and the Antichrist in the middle. Does that cause the war in heaven? Three of the ten horns are killed by the eleventh little horn, Daniel 7-8. That happens in the middle. By the way, oh, got all that far. Doggone it. Almost hit the tape. I got it. Ten horns, or ten kings, Daniel 7, 8 says, The eleventh, the little horn, kills three of them. How many do I have? I know, it's math. I have seven left, right? And the eleventh horn then becomes the what horn? He becomes the eighth horn. So not only is he the eighth head, but he's also the eighth king, or the eighth horn. The eleventh is now the eighth. And the seventh head is also the eighth head. And the great whore is made desolate. In the middle of this, the whore. This is the church, the word of on church. <laughs> the Worship. Whole world. Who do they worship? Worships, it says, first, the dragon. The whole world worships the dragon and then the beast. We both worship. The first one they worship is the dragon. That happens in the middle. And again, there's a 75-day error. i put that in there for you. 1,336 days. More math. Plus 25, 20 plus 75, 1,335. Which of those caused the war in heaven? I narrowed it down for you. Let's rise. And get out of here.